Yeah, I'm reminded of that proverb that he who waters will himself be watered, right? And that's just the truth. The Lord has made us to be active participants in his kingdom, and we want to experience what it is to co-labor with the Lord and know his nearness. Well, you've got to get out there and do something, don't you? And that can be with your neighbors. It can certainly be with your kids as mom stay home. It can be in lots of different ways, but it, but it has to do with opening your mouth. And uh, the Lord will be with us as we do that. So, all right, First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. And I brought my glasses today. It's a historic moment. Because I might need them. First Peter chapter 3. Just don't watch. I'm a good reformed guy now, right? Wow, you guys are all blurry. Okay. Does make it so much better. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3. Starting in verse 10. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Father, we, as we look this morning at an aspect of Your character, that Lord, that is not certainly popular to this world, um, to the natural man, we pray, that, we pray that we would see it as a glorious reality, that You are a holy God, that You're a just God, that You're a God who ultimately is the judge of all the earth. And Lord, we pray that You would give us insight and clarity and sobriety as we think about these things. Lord, that You take evil personally. Lord, this is Your world. We are in it. And Lord, all we like sheep have gone astray. All of us, at least at some point in our lives, have gone astray. We've each turned to our own way. We've each gone our own way determining good and evil for ourselves until You intervene in our life and You wake us up from our, from our foolish and um, just dark uh, hearts and understanding. And You reveal to us just the real meaning of, of life. And it's to know you, to know your son. Um, Lord, in this present age, it's to turn away from evil and to walk with you. And so, Lord, we, um, we thank you for these reminders this morning, and we thank you for your word. Lord, help me to be faithful to proclaim this aspect, Lord, so that we um, can be said to be those that submit ourselves to the whole counsel of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as you may already kind of uh, gather from my prayer, we're going to be looking at the last part in verse 12. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And I'm reminded of the um, words of God to Ezekiel and also to John, I believe, 
and I meant to write it down and just didn't. With these two prophets, these two men of God, God comes to them and he hands them a scroll and he says, I want you to eat it. I don't know, how many of you guys remember that? I want you to eat this scroll, eat this book. I should have, I should have written down the scripture verses. You can go back and look it up. And John says when he eats the scroll that it was both sweet to his taste and bitter to his stomach. And one of the things that we know as we read the book of the Revelation and Ezekiel as well is that what God gives, what God gives Ezekiel and what God gives John to eat is a blend. It's a blend of God's glories and salvation and God's severity and holiness and justice and judgment. And I can tell you that just looking at this, this whole topic of the Lord setting His face against those who do evil, I do understand that something of that dynamic of having it be sweet to the taste in the sense that it's true, right? That God is just and God is the judge of all the earth and God is antagonistic towards evildoers. Um, but it's also bitter things because it's not just God that, it's not just evil that God judges, God judges people. And these people deserve it, but these people are made in his image, and these are precious souls that very well may be candidates for the gospel. And to Jeff's point, with door-to-door, this is one of the reasons we do it, right? Because God is against those who do evil, and if they do not find refuge in him, they will experience the full measure of that wrath, rightly so. And that's a hard thing to hold in, isn't it? The more you live in life, and the more you, as a Christian, and the more you, you, you... you are faced with holding to these truths that are difficult, the more you feel the burden of it and the the temptation to begin to let it go a little bit. It's hard to live with that sense that one day, really, (laughs) genuinely, all people will stand before Jesus Christ whose eyes are a flame of fire. That's hard, isn't it? But it's, it's real and it's true, and we cannot let this go. We as a church cannot let this go. If we let this go, we let the gospel go. And so... I want to look at it a little bit this morning and, um, and share some of that same sentiment with you. So, as I said, we'll be at the end of here, uh, end of the section here in verse 12. So Peter, as we've talked about in weeks past, has encouraged the saints there by saying that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. It's such a wonderful, wonderful truth. But there's a transition from that sentiment. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He introduces this transition with the word, but he, he makes a move from this positive, affirm, affirming, assuring truth to a word rooted in a reality that is a warning to all those who do evil. The saints, we enjoy the assurance and the loving focus of the Lord expressed in the the words that Peter said of the eyes of the Lord are toward us, his ears are toward us. It's wonderful. It's a glorious reality. But there's an opposite dreadful truth. That Peter must say. And it's that God is personally focused against those who do evil. His face is toward the righteous, but his face is set 
in focus, in opposition to those who do evil. The Bible's teaching about God is more than God is love or God is merciful. God is love, but God is holy, God is just, and where there is evil and sin, He must be against it. It's not just that He is, He has to be, or else He would not be holy or just. Human beings are okay with justice. We like justice. America likes justice. Everybody likes justice, right? We like when evil is vanquished. We love superhero movies. We love that idea. Right? We, we root at the end when the, when the evil villain is conquered. But people in the West and people in general, in, in those in Adam, I guess you could say, and sometimes even Christians in our bad days, we don't want to think about, we don't want to think about a just God who is against evil, especially when the Bible is saying that the evil lies within you. We're okay with justice in the abstract as long as it suits our needs and our interests. But when it has to do with God being just and being holy and being righteous and setting his face against those who do evil, we don't like that because, well, we're the ones who are evil. And I think there's a sneaking suspicion in every person that they know that. And that's what Romans 1 says. They know they're, they're worthy of death. And that's why they don't like it. They don't have any issues with justice. They just have an issue with God being just because they know that they're recipients of that. And they suppress that truth. But we cannot relinquish this for a second. We cannot relinquish this passage or else we genuinely will have nothing to say to people. And this, 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 this struck me as I was thinking about this topic. The face of the Lord against, is against those who do evil. How often do I bring this up in conversations with people as I'm talking to them about the gospel? It's important to ask yourself that question. Do you get there? We have to get there. Now we want to get there with love. We want to, be the, we want to get there with respect. We want to get there with meekness. But we also have to get there. Because the reality, it is coming, isn't it? It is coming. And this is why John the Baptist, the, the sort of the heartbeat of his message is flee the wrath to come. Repent. Why? Not just so you can have a wonderful life, but so that you can flee the wrath to come. In Jesus, the same, same sentiment. But what does it mean? Let's think about it for a little while here. What does it mean? The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, when you think of this whole idea of the face of the Lord, face means just that. It means that which you see. You see my face here this morning, right? In the Old Testament, it can mean something like surface, like surface of the ground, that which you can see, that which is right on top. There's the language of the face of the whole earth. And when, when coupled with this idea of direction, it can mean focus as well. What do I mean by that? Well, Genesis 31, you don't have to turn there. The text says, So Jacob fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So, so here's the text saying that Jacob has a determination to set his face a certain direction, and that is to go to Gilead. You can think of Jesus, right? When he set his face to go to Jerusalem to fulfill the mission that, that his father had for him, the work of the cross. And so th- there's this idea that it's, it's, it's that which we see, 
but it also can have this context of focus and a certain determination. When it's used of the Lord himself, it means something like his personal presence and attention that he gives to others. When God's face is, is, is shining as a certain attention and a focus on, on, on his saints. So think of Exodus 33, 11, as we think about the fact that it has to do with his personal presence and attention, in Exodus thirty-three eleven, it says that thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. You remember God would, that Moses would go and meet with, with, uh, with God in the tent, the tent of meeting it was called, right? Where God would meet with Moses. And God had this incredible relationship with Moses and would speak to him face to face, it says. Face to face. There's a sense in which Moses can say that I spoke with the Lord face to face. Now, not, probably not in the, the fullest sense of that, right? Because later on, as Moses wants to see God's glory, God says, well, I need to hide you a little bit and I can let you see my backside. I can't let you see my face or you'll die. But the reality is that this is capturing something of the intimate presence of the Lord in this relationship with Moses. You can't get more personal than face to face, right? <laughs> we all experienced that in COVID with Zoom. We, it was okay, provisional, much better to be with each other, right? And that's what's going on here. When God, when God is said to speak with Moses face to face, you can't get more intimate than this. God is there. He's speaking to Moses directly, not through a medium, directly. And one, one of the things we want to take away from this whole idea of the, that the, that of the face of the Lord is that God is not an impersonal force like math, right? He's not like the law of gravity, He's not like the Stoics who used to think that, that the Logos was this impersonal law that sort of keeps the world held together. No, our God is a face. Our God is a personal, living being who has personhood. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that the Lord has a literal head and skin and cheeks and eyes and ears. God is spirit, as Jesus says. But God does see. God does hear. God does speak. So God's face is just a way of describing these things. That he has this personal presence, communication, and attention to his image bearers. And that can be for good, or we'll find, or it can be for ill. When God shines his face on a human being, they know it, they sense it. It's a joyous thing. And when he sets his face against someone, it's a terrifying thing. Let's look at a couple places where we see a little bit more of this reality that Face has to do with the presence of God, personal God. So Exodus 25.30, you can just listen to these if you'd like. But Exodus 25.30, as we're given the sort of the furniture of the tabernacle, God gives directions to Moses and he says, You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. Now one of the things you may not catch in your translations is that the word here for presence, I think the ASV translates it showbread, 
The, the literal rendering here is the bread of the face. The bread of the presence is the, is the language the NAS translates it. So, so what, do we, what do we think of that? Well, most of you will remember where, where the bread is put. The bread is actually put in the holy place, right outside the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God, the intense presence of God, would come once a year. And this bread is said to be laid before this Holy of Holies, or before the face of the Lord, perpetually. Just a few feet away, this bread was to be laid. It's to be there in the vicinity of that area that... that that was supposed to house this intense presence of the Lord. And in Leviticus 24, we find that the bread is to be there as a perpetual memorial, reminding the people of God's provision for them in the wilderness, and just in general, that God is the source of life. His very presence is the source of life. You remember when, God, when Moses went up on the mountain, and when God was there speaking with Moses, And Moses came down and his face was glowing. I don't know if you caught the fact that Moses did not eat for 40 days and 40 nights, and yet he was not skinnier. At least we don't know that. (laughs) Maybe he was. But his face was shining. He didn't look famished. Right? Why? Because God is the source of life. God is the source of life. When you're in God's presence, that's all you need. It's amazing. Think of that. Coming down glowing. I I don't know how you do in our times of corporate prayer and fasting you know one day and I'm like 40 days what does this say about God but this is to remind us of God's presence that that this is the bread of the presence this is the bread of the face this is God's just communicating to us that he is the he's our life source in the Psalms the face of the Lord is that which the saints long for Psalm 13 How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 13, you'll remember, is a psalm of a plea for help in a a state where this saint is in a desperate situation. There are all these foes coming against David, people opposing him. He feels all alone. But worst of all, he feels cut off from God. And he says, how long will you hide your face from me? David thinks that if God's face is not hidden, he will have light given to him. He'll be restored to comfort and confidence. But when the Lord hides his face, he's destitute. Psalm 44, similar psalm, says this, arouse yourself. In the presence of wickedness, arouse yourself, Lord. Why do you sleep? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Again, here the psalmist feels rejected by the Lord, enemies persecuting them, oppressing them. How does the psalmist interpret these events? He interprets them as the Lord hiding his face. Because see, when the Lord's face is present and and focused on you, there's this reality of goodness and glory and comfort and, and restoration and strength. And the psalmist is thinking here, it's, it's like the Lord isn't taking notice and instead men are getting the upper hand. Lord, why do you hide your face? The, the psalmist knows that if the Lord were to turn and look with one glimpse 
and respond with power, he could save. And sometimes we feel that way. Psalm 27, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn away your servant in anger. Here again, having the face of the Lord toward and manifest to David is his great longing. David here is aching that the Lord be with him. And it appears that the face of the Lord is something that God wants David to seek and find. God says to David, seek my face. He says to every Christian, seek my face. Seek my face. Seek me personally. Seek my fellowship. Seek my love. Find me. I want you to find me. It's not just obey me. It's not just follow my rules. It's seek my face. Pursue fellowship with me. Brethren, this this is the heart of Christianity. If you forget this, you just become religious. And going along with that becomes self-righteousness and so on and so forth, right? That's what happens. But if you're seeking God's face and you, you engage with Him and you know Him and you walk with Him, He always stays in His right place. You always stay in your right place. And there's humility and there's life and there's love. These things. God says, seek my face. Seek my personal presence. When you get to the New Testament, God's face, on, God's face takes on a clearer picture, doesn't it? And is given to the heart of every child of God. Of course, you can hear in Jesus saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's some reality going on there, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But even those who haven't seen the physical Christ, Paul tells us that every genuine believer has a clear picture given to them in their hearts of the face of of Jesus Christ, which is the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul says all believers have the glory of God communicated and shown into their hearts. It's an inward work. The promise of the new covenant. And this glory of God, Paul says, is said to emanate from the face of Jesus. In other words, every Christian knows from their heart and has seen in their hearts the face of Jesus Christ, which is the glory of God. This is why to get the deity of Christ wrong is to not have the glory of God. It's to, to, to not see Christ rightly. He is the glory of God. The radiance of His glory. As, as believers, every genuine Christian, I know something about you. And that is, Jesus Christ is glorious to you. I already know that about you. If you're a Christian in here, that's indisputable. That's fundamental. It's common to all of us who know Jesus. We have seen there is something far, far more unique in this man than any other man. Because he is the glory of God. And ultimately, we know that seeing the face of God is the ultimate goal for all the saints, right? Brethren, if the goal of seeing His face has become dim, pray this. Think of Revelation 22, 3 and 4. And there shall be no curse anymore, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be therein, and His bondservants will serve Him. And they will see His face. 
and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Remember in the Old Testament, that whole sacrificial system, again, we're reminded in lots of different ways that you can't see God. You can't see this holy God or you die. No one can see his face and live. The face of God is that essential glory of God, is the essential essence that is so pure and it cannot dwell with sinful man. Even we as genuine believers right now, because we still are hitched to this flesh, this old man, still cannot inherit, as Paul says, the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood, we can't. We have to put on immortality. We couldn't withstand it, being in that kind of glory. But there was this ongoing sense, how are we going to get back to God? That's what the veil's for. There's still a separation, there's still a separation, but one day, no veil, period. I mean, there's no veil now, in one sense, but there is a sense in which there's, there's, a, there's a glass darkly, right? There's a, there is a separation still at some level that we can't see his face and live, but one day you will see his face. The light that preceded the sun will be the light that outlasts the sun. And it's the face of the living God. And we will see it one day unshielded by sin. We will marvel at this. Our hearts will rejoice. It's a glorious thing. But Peter's point is not so joyous as he thinks about the face of the Lord. It is a joyful thing as the things we consider as we think about what it is. But Peter's point is that just as much as God's personal presence is actively encouraging and and life-giving to his saints, so also it is the face of the Lord that is personally focused against evildoers. What you'll find as we go through some passages is that the wrath of God is not just the consequences of sin, sort of the natural outworking of making bad decisions. It is the personal animus of, a, of the living God. So let's just look at these together so that we don't forget. Looking at God's face being against evildoers. Leviticus 17.10, again, you can listen on or turn there if you'd like. I'm just going to jump to a few passages. Leviticus 17.10. God here speaking again through Moses setting up the law and all of its constraints as it pertains to sacrifices and priesthood and so on and so forth. God is giving stipulations about sacrifices and giving sacrifices about blood, or giving instruction about blood. And he says, Leviticus 17.10, Any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. It was forbidden under the law for any of God's people to eat any of the blood of the animal they killed when hunting or otherwise. 
And why? Well, we're not, we're not given a ton of reasons, but we are given clear reasons, and one of them is not health. But as God says, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So, so if, you, if, you, if, you hunt, if you're hunting a bird, you kill it, don't drain the blood, right? God will set his face against you. And why? Because he wants you to know something about the preciousness of blood and the atonement. He doesn't want you to treat blood as a common thing. It's the symbol of life. Those who eat meat with the blood will be dealt with by the Lord. In this system, this is to teach this, that blood is precious because it's symbolic of the life. And of course, I think there were some pagan practices going on in Canaan still. Some, some references to goat demons and things like that, where I think drinking the blood was also in view. But here the Lord is simply wanting to teach them a lesson about the life-giving nature of blood. And he says that if you drink blood, Israel, you don't take this seriously, I will set my face against you and personally see to it that you are cut off. So when we say that God's face is against, what we mean is that God is angry and he's angry at you if you're the perpetrator. He is not an impersonal force. This is his personal animus against you. And it's right. Because you did wrong. (laughs) It's not whimsical. He's responding. Leviticus 20, 20, verse uh, 3 through 6 God says, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Molech so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. If the people of the land, however, should disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Molech, so as not to put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut off from among their people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Molech. Many of you remember that Molech was the ancient god of the Canaanites, symbolized their as the sort of the, some people think, God of fertility or um, blessing in some sense. Moloch was symbolized in this statue of a humanoid bull. The tradition says that the statue had several different compartments where one could lay sacrifices of food or animals. And there was one compartment at the top where people would actually sacrifice their children. This is real, historical, verifiable stuff. So much for the coexist sticker. Right? This is murder. This is horrible, satanic. And there was a place in this statue where one would start a fire and whatever was in the statue would burn up. People believed that by offering their child they would have some appeasement to the gods or to this god or somehow achieve some blessing. It's the way idolatry works. If I scratch your back, you scratch mine. 
And God says, when you do this, you defile my sanctuary and are worthy of death. And he says, I will set my face personally against you. And this language here that he says, they are playing the harlot, he says. He says, you're giving your allegiance, your worship, your trust to a false God. And therefore, God takes it personally. He says, I will set my face against you. Now, now people, people in our day, don't, we don't erect a bull, right? I did hear there was some weird, with the Commonwealth Games, they brought a huge bull out, something like that, and it looked like people were worshiping it or something. I don't know if some of you saw that. That's really strange. But for the most part, people aren't going around erecting, you know, the god of Molech, are they? But do people go around playing the harlot against God? People go around cheating on God? Yeah, they sure do. How do you think God feels about that? Think he doesn't care? Think God is indifferent? Think God doesn't see? God does see. He does care. People worship and serve all manner of things except the true and living God. Jesus says you can't serve God in money. In the worship of money, people sacrifice their time, love, and yes, even their children. Women who have abortions often sacrifice their children on the altar of career or pleasure or just flat-out inconvenience. Make no mistake, God has set his face against these women and against all people who support such horrific practices. I mean, it's true that some women sacrificed their children out of desperation, to be sure, but do you not think that those who sacrificed under Moloch were in a similar state? Isn't that why they do it? They're desperate for something? Desperate for answers? Desperate for blessing? Desperate for favor? It's really not that much different, is it? It's murder on the altar of a false god. God takes idolatry extremely seriously. He sees the world continually playing the harlot against him, worshiping and serving everything else but him. As Paul says, as you know very well in Romans 1, speaking of the whole human race, they do not honor him or give them thanks, but they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And God takes us personally. He sets his face against this world as those who continually, day by day, breathe his air, walk on his dirt, and yet don't regard him for a second. God takes it personally. Leviticus 26, 14 through 20, But if you do not obey me, God says, and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not, so as not to carry out all my commandments, and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste away in the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you, so that you will be struck down before your enemies. And those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will also break down your pride of power, and I will make your sky like iron. And your earth like bronze. Oh, to have the stiff arm of God. He's opposed to the proud. He says, Your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not 
yield their fruit. And why? Because he says, you have not obeyed my commands. You haven't done what I said. The Lord says, if you do not obey my commandments, all of my commandments, I will set my face against you. And you will spoil, you will be the spoil for your enemies. You will be cowards. You will be fearful. You will be diseased-ridden, have a futile life. This is what it is to turn away from God. This is what it is to be an idolater. This is what it is to put God's word behind you. God means business with his word. He speaks for a purpose. He is Lord of all. And this is the way God views disobedience to him. You know, we don't see lightning bolts coming down on, on the unbelievers at our workplace day in and day out, but do not think it's because God hasn't set his face against them. Do not think it's because God is okay with them. God is patient right now. But all of their sins are being stacked up in a heap. Make no mistake about it. And if they don't find their refuge in the Savior, then all of these things will come upon them. As the Proverbs say, what the wicked fear will come upon them. In disobedience to God's command, you see it from the beginning. When God says, the day you eat of it, you'll you'll surely die. In other words, the day you disobey my commandments, you will die. People are dead in trespasses and sins. They constantly trespass. They constantly break His command. They, They constantly disobey. We look at these passages in the Old Testament and we think, wow, this sounds harsh. God is going to do this to those who disobey Him? He's going to send all manner of sickness and a futile way of life and, and fear and, and people becoming mad? This sounds horrible. But God is, is said, even in the New Testament, to do this to disobey him to those who disobey him but but in language even more severe in Romans 1 again God says that for those who are idolaters and worship and serve other things God gives them over to a depraved mind and to sickness they receive in their bodies the due penalty of their error all manner of lusts that rule over them and God says these are all manifestations of his personal wrath I hope you know that. In Romans 1.18, all of these things, a, a culture accelerated into sin is God's wrath. It's God's anger accelerating this. Giving them over to the lusts of their flesh. Giving them what they want. And they want more and more. God depriving human beings of grace in life because they have rejected Him. And for those who don't repent of the idolatry, God reserves the most terrifying of language to describe their destiny. Remember Jesus, eternal fire, outer darkness. Revelation 14, grapes tread under God's wrath with blood reaching to the horse's bridles. See, one of the things you have to understand about Old Testament Israel is that Old Testament Israel is a picture, really, of the rest of humanity when met with the law of God and the righteous standards of God. They're just a picture, sort of a parable of the human heart. 
God has expressed His righteousness in the laws to Old Testament Israel, and He gave them to be obeyed. They, of course, did not obey them, and God finally rejects them. Now these laws were not to be a ladder to righteousness, but they were to bring the knowledge of sin so people could understand their desperate state, turn from their sins, seek mercy from the Lord, and live by faith. But the rest of humanity is no different than Israel. Just so happens the Jews were the ones to kill Jesus by God's determined plan, but I mean the humanity in Israel wasn't any worse than our own. Paul says God's reality and his attributes have been clearly seen in creation and in conscience and all people everywhere without excuse. Instead of worshiping God or giving him thanks, they suppress the truth within them and hate God. Therefore, God's wrath is kindled against him. And the only way out is not by becoming a good person, but it's by coming to terms that you're not a good person. The honest and good heart, Jesus says, that receives that, that seed is not the, the heart that's sinless. It's the heart that recognizes who it is, honestly. The only way out is by trusting in the only one who ever has been well-pleasing to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one who was ever sinless in every way. The sinless Christ on the cross becomes a curse for humanity, bearing the wrath human beings deserve so that we could be reconciled to God and not have God's face set against us in anger. That's the wonderful reality of the gospel, isn't it? If you haven't done this, you are viewed as a transgressor and God's face is set against you. Or as Jesus says, His wrath abides upon you. Psalm 34, which is actually Peter's text that he quotes. He says, Who is the man who desires life and love, desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil, do good, seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Again, this is where Peter is drawing this this language from. Peter says the true blessed life is lived by watching our tongues, seeking peace and good works. This person has the Lord's eyes and ears attend him attentive to him or her, but those who do evil, the face of the Lord is against them. Again, we hear that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. It's clear here, though, that while in a certain sense that's true, that's not actually a full picture. The Lord is personally against human beings who do evil. Evil doers is the language. Not just evil itself. God doesn't just throw evil into hell, does he? He judges people. He throws people into hell. He is against people who do evil. Make no mistake, if you claim to know God and know Jesus Christ and you're an evildoer, God has set his face against you. And he's giving you time to repent, which is wonderful. Evildoers. 
And this passage says that evil shall slay the wicked. You've heard the Proverbs, you know, that that he who digs a pit will fall into it. That's what's happening here. The wicked make their own beds, don't they? While While we're clear that all in Adam are condemned in Adam, we also are clear that men are judged for their evil deeds. They're assigned a place in the lake of fire with whatever judgment God meets out with them because of their evil deeds, their personal evil that they have done. Evil shall slay the wicked. It's so important to understand that God's judgment is a response. Again, it's not whimsical. It's a response. God is not going around punishing well-meaning innocent people. He's against those who are lawbreakers, those who worship other things more than him, those those who love father or mother more than him, those who love their lives and will not yield to them to, to serve him. And here in particular, he's thinking of those who hate the righteous. I don't know if you caught that. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned, he says. All over this world, God sees those Christians being persecuted by Wicked governments and wicked people, wicked soldiers, whatever. And God sees it. And he is against those who hate the righteous. He says they will be condemned. Unless, as the passage goes on to say, these people take refuge in the Lord. He says that. And none of those who take refuge in, the, in him will be condemned. It's really the only, way to, it's the only place to go. Isn't it? It's the only place to go. There is no other place to hide, which we'll see now in Revelation chapter 6. This is where we'll end. Revelation 6, 12. Brethren, this is a vivid picture here. This is a vivid picture. And God gives you a picture and a glimpse of what it will be in that day when people are absolutely shocked out of their gourd when the sky opens up and Jesus Christ comes in, in blazing glory. To save those who are his, but also to render recompense and vengeance on all the wicked. We have that vision here. Revelation 6.12. John says, I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, that is the Lamb, the Lion of Judah, when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. All creation split for the entrance of this glorious Lamb. What happens at that point? Well, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave, they're not exempt. And every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Why? For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Brethren, this is, this is your family members. These are your neighbors. These are your co-workers. These are people living in our community here. These are kings. These are slaves. Shocked in a moment when they realize it's all true. And they hide. They want to hide. But there's nowhere to hide. 
They not only want to hide, but they want to be ground to powder. They say, fall on us. One day people will be longing for death. They will be longing for it. I am not just a preacher up here saying these things. These things are real. They are coming. That's why we have it. The wrath of the Lamb. They will be saying, fall on us, hide us. People people will be longing for extinction instead of facing the wrath of God. They will be longing to be ground to powder into oblivion because they know God is now their enemy. If God is your enemy, extinction is good news. These people are wanting mountains to fall on them. Rocks crush them. Whatever it takes to get away from the wrath of the Lamb. And who is able to stand? Non-existence is preferable to facing a holy God who inflicts just wrath. Whereas Revelation 14 says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. No rest day or night. Jesus says, outer darkness. An old theologian says this, if there is any truth in Scripture at all, this is true, that those who stubbornly refuse to submit to the Gospel and to love and obey Jesus Christ incur at the last coming an infinite and irreparable loss. They pass into a night on which no morning ever dawns. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that's that's actually true? You'll pray a little different. You'll want to come to corporate prayer more. When you get together in your accountability groups, you'll be thinking, we really need to pray for this. Don't we? We need to. Maybe you'll consider going door to door because you realize that everyone's going to be facing the wrath of the Lamb if they're not found in Jesus Christ. This passage tells us that the wicked, they want to be hidden from His wrath on that day. God is here finally showing what it means that His face is personally focused against evildoers. It says, hide us from the face of Him on the throne. Brethren, the Lord not only knows how to save and redeem, but He also knows how to damn. He knows how to inflict justice. But again, we can answer the question of the text, who's able to stand? And In one sense, nobody. There's no one able to stand. No one will stand against the Lord on that day. They know that. They don't know that now, but they'll know that then. Who's able to stand? No one. All people outside of Christ won't be able to escape. God will break them down, but there is one group able to stand. Able to stand because we have washed our robes white in the blood of the Lamb. The ones who have hidden ourselves in the rock who is Jesus Christ. Those who are written in the the Lamb's book of life, it says. So just a few observations, and and then we're done. First is God's face is currently set against those who do evil. We must appreciate this reality. We must thank God that He is this way. We, we need to. We need to, we need to thank the Lord that He is this way. Again, everyone loves the idea of justice. Right? Because evil is so contrary to God's creation, God's moral universe. We need to be so thankful that, that ultimately speaking, God is a just God. We cannot be ashamed of this. 
We cannot be ashamed of telling people that God is against evildoers. God is love, but, but he's also one that will avenge his name. He will repay. And it's also important, I was talking to Titus. Titus and I were talking about these things last night. It's also important, and Steve made this comment, and I probably said this before, but I just felt like it just so good. God does not judge out of pleasure. It's not fun for God. He judges because he cannot overlook evil. So he punishes not because he, he wants to, but because he has to. It's the right response. You just hear it in the language, you know, when he's speaking in the prophets of turn, turn, why will, you, why will you die? You hear that in him, don't you? Jesus looking at Jerusalem saying, oh, if you would have just known the things that make for peace. And he's sitting there and, and, and Luke tells us he's weeping. This has to be our heart, brethren. This has to be our heart for sinners. I don't know if you have that heart, but you need that heart. If you're a Christian in here and you don't have that heart, you need to ask the Lord for that heart. Pray to the Lord that I have that heart that recognizes this reality that God holds his arms outstretched to disobedient, obstinate people all day, every day. And it's a sincere offer. It's a sincere reality. He really does want them to come. And you know what? He's not back yet. Right? Lots more kids are going to get saved. Lots more Syrian refugees in Lebanon are going to get saved. Not as many people still, I think. Or else this whole thing would be wrapped up. So we got work to do, don't we? Another thing in Peter's day, for Peter to remind the brethren here that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, this would be encouraging to those who were persecuted. Now, I think it was probably a soft persecution, at least at this time in, in Peter's general area. Not in Rome, but in Peter's general area. And it would get worse and worse as time goes on. But the reality is that for those who are facing genuine persecution and just the ongoing just oppression and hatred and volatility toward your faith, you're going to take great solace to know that one day the Lord's going to set it all right. You know? How wonderful that'll be. You, you won't ever have to look over your shoulder again. In the book of the Revelation, it said outside of the dogs. They're outside. They're not in that city. And ultimately, this is why the gospel is good news. For all the benefits of salvation in terms of things between our fellow men, having a redeemed work ethic so that we work diligently, or having a strong marriage, or all these benefits of salvation, being saved from the wrath of God ranks up there, doesn't it, as one of the top reasons that the gospel is good news. If your life is hard, but you're in Jesus Christ, at least you are going to be rescued from the wrath to come. No matter how hard life gets, It's only going to get better. And this can get, give great encouragement when all seems trial and hardship. At least you can know God's face is not against you. 
Trials come to strengthen faith and to bring about pruning, but no matter how hard the pruning, it's nothing compared to how hard it will be for those outside of Christ. Oh, what a glorious gospel. Just finish with this. Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter one. As those who were persecuted in Thessalonica, those saints in Thessalonica, verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for, the, for God to repay with affliction those who refli- afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty. It's literally dikai sune, it's justice. It's, these will pay the just penalty of eternal destruction. And literally it's from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. And to this end, we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that we will not be separated from your face of comfort and kindness and love, but Lord, we will see your face. We will enjoy basking in the presence of your glory one day. And Lord, we don't know the half. We don't even know just a fraction of what that'll be. But Lord, we know it's true. And Lord, we know that the horrors of that day will also be true. That people will be, will be wanting just a drop of water Um, will not be given any. That chasm is fixed. That day is fixed. There will be no turning back. The door will be shut. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to to just to know this and to carry about in in our minds and hearts every day, as Paul says, the gospel with the shoes of readiness. That we would be ready to tell people how to flee from the wrath to come. Lord, help us to do it with courage, with love. And Lord, help us to see people genuinely hide themselves in the Savior. Lord, give, give success with door-to-door evangelism. Give success uh, with moms with children. Give success with neighbors. Give success overseas. Lord, we want to see more and more people gathered into your flock, testifying of your great and mighty deeds to save them from sin. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.